Hello everyone, it's time for Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. If you become a supporter at any level, even just a dollar, you'll have access to my next Myth of the Month, which will be on astrology. So, I've previously talked about the rise of so-called absolutism and the high watermark of royal power in Europe in the early modern age, in the cases of the Habsburgs in Central Europe and Spain and the Tudor dynasty in England. And I'm going to talk next about Bourbon France, France under the Bourbon dynasty, which many people often think of as the epitome of absolutism, particularly the great so-called Sun King, Louis XIV, who reigned through most of the 1600s. But something I want to make clear here when we're talking about France, as well as those other countries that I've discussed before, is that absolutism, absolute rule, was really only an ideal that could never actually be realized effectively in practice. It was at best a sort of veneer on a very complicated set of political strategies and maneuvers. And for centuries leading up to this absolutist era in the 1600s, there had been shifting alliances among the different classes and estates of society. So this sort of classic three-estate model of society held that there were three distinct orders, the clergy, the people of the church, the nobility, and the commoners. That was the sort of accepted ideology of society in the late Middle Ages. And there were often kind of shifting alignments among those three bodies. And then on top of that, of course, you had the monarch, who in theory was part of the second estate, but also really functioned as separate power centers of their own that had to kind of strategize and maneuver in how they related to these different estates of society. And all of that was then further complicated in the early modern era with the rise of the so-called bourgeoisie, the growth of a bigger town-dwelling merchant and then industrialist class. And these sort of well-to-do commoners also wanted to stake out positions of power and prestige in society that they felt was commensurate with their value, their culture, and their wealth. So I already talked a bit about how that situation developed and was very volatile in England, with the Tudor dynasty making an alliance with these rising commoners and often bringing people into the highest levels of government in order to try to manage and keep at bay these alternate power centers like the church, and the aristocracy. Well, these sort of things happened in France, too. And the word bourgeoisie is a French word. So this rising class of wealthy commoners was particularly conspicuous in France, and they came into play. And one of the effects of this was that they created more avenues for the monarchy to seek out 
money, military support, and skilled diplomats and administrators that could shore up their power and allow them to at least assert the notion that the monarch should have absolute power in accord with their divine right. So really, you know, the essence of absolutism, in a way, it's a doctrine that could never really be realized, but the actual political reality underlying it was simply a strong alliance between the monarchy and the commoners as against the other traditional power bases in society. And in France, that meant circumventing the powers and clipping the wings, you could say, of the high aristocracy and the church. And this sort of arrangement did work out reasonably well for a time, but not forever. It eventually did fall apart, as many people anticipated that it would. And that set the stage then for the French Revolution. So let's back up then and talk about where the Bourbon dynasty, which made this aggressive push for absolute power, where did they come from? And how did they end up in that position? Well, the House of Bourbon is a very long-lasting dynasty, which has had many twists and turns, as all long-standing dynasties do. But it began as a branch, a junior branch, of the Capet dynasty, which ruled France through most of the High Middle Ages. So the House of Capet was in power in France in the 1200s, the Bourbon family was descended from a younger son, the sixth son of King Louis IX, the great crusading king who was also known as Saint Louis. And they married into a powerful ducal house with an estate at Bourbon. And for many years, this branch of the family simply waited in the wings. And eventually, when the direct line of Capet kings died out, the throne passed to another, somewhat more senior branch of the family called the Valois family. So the Valois house or Valois dynasty, you might call it, ruled then for several hundred years as well. But in 1548, the Duke of Bourbon, so the scion of this more junior branch, married the Queen of Navarre, which was an independent Basque kingdom centered in the Pyrenees on the border of what's now Spain and France. And the Duke of Bourbon and his wife, the Queen of Navarre, had a son, Henry, who was born in 1553 and who naturally was known as Henry of Navarre. And he was raised by his mother as a Protestant. The official religion of Navarre was Calvinist Protestantism. And while he was growing up, France, his father's homeland, was torn apart by religious wars, which I've discussed a little bit before. This contention between the Catholic and Protestant camps in France divided the royal court, the nobility, the military, the intelligentsia. Much of this literate, educated bourgeoisie went over to the reformed Protestant church. And repeatedly, civil war broke out in France all through the later 1500s. And Henry of Navarre crossed over the border into France 
and as a teenager, he volunteered to fight with the Protestant faction. And in 1572, when he was 19 years old, still in the midst of these youthful adventures, his mother died and he became King of Navarre. And once he assumed this title, he quickly then married Margaret of Valois, the sister of the King of France. And they held a wedding in Paris in the plaza outside of Notre-Dame de Paris, as I mentioned in my earlier lecture about Gothic cathedrals. And this marriage was approved of by the French king, even though he was a Catholic and Margaret of Valois, his sister, was Catholic. Nonetheless, this marriage was seen as a politically wise move. It would consolidate Henry of Navarre's claim to the French throne if the Valois line died out, which seemed quite possible because the Valois king, Henry III, had no children. However, this gathering of Protestants who went into Paris to observe and celebrate this marriage of a Protestant king of Navarre to the king's sister it ended up provoking a massive Catholic backlash and the very bloody so-called St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. And Henry of Navarre was able to survive the massacre by taking shelter with the court and converting to Catholicism. So he abjured his Protestant faith, went over to the Catholic camp, and then was held basically as a protected prisoner at court for four years. In 1576, he was able to escape and he went out into the country and rejoined the Protestant faction and switched back to Protestantism. And this then reignited the wars and the religious wars between Catholics and Protestants resumed. Henry continued to support the Protestant cause while also waiting in the wings. And his wife, Margaret, the sister of Henry III, tried to mediate between the two sides. She shuttled back and forth trying to work out some agreement. But in the meantime, she had no children. They did not conceive. Henry was frustrated by this situation, and so he decided he didn't want Margaret as a wife anymore. He basically unofficially separated from her, pushed her away, and so she jumped over back to her brother's court and fully supported the Catholic side. So now you had the, this couple still technically married, but on opposite sides of these religious wars. And the sort of Cold War off-again, on-again conflict continued until 1585. And in that year, Henry III named Henry of Navarre as his heir. Even though he was Protestant, he still put his lot in with Henry of Navarre. And he tried to suppress the most fanatical, violent opposition to this decision that he knew would come out against him when he named Henry of Navarre as his heir. And particularly the hardcore Catholic party in France was led by a powerful aristocratic house, the Guise family. And so Henry, King Henry III had assassins kill the main leaders of the Guise family. This led to a further uprising against the king, and so King Henry realized that in order to suppress this mutiny, he had to turn to the Protestant faction for help. So the royal court and the Protestants made an alliance. And for a time, for several years, there was a further war, which has been called the War of the Three Henrys, because it involved King Henry III, Henry of Navarre, his Protestant ally, and Henry de Guise, the leader of the Catholic faction. 
And finally, in 1589, the King and Henry of Navarre together succeeded in securing control of the country. They marched triumphantly into the capital and took up governance, but shortly thereafter, King Henry III was assassinated. So, naturally, Henry of Navarre claimed the throne, and his supporters proclaimed him as King Henry IV. So now, finally, this Bourbon line have a legitimate claim to the throne. But a Catholic League forms to try to stop this. They will not accept Henry, and they oppose him basically for the crime of ruling while Protestant. So this Catholic League got support both from Spain and the Pope. So they have a serious international coalition backing them. And in opposition, Henry of Navarre, who is now known as Henry IV, gets monetary support from England, a Protestant ally, and uses it to hire German Protestant mercenaries. So Henry is able to win a series of important battles against the Catholic League, but he still failed to capture Paris. He besieged Paris in 1590 and seemed within reach of victory, but he failed. So the conflict dragged on for several more years, with Henry unable to secure control of the capital, And the Catholic League scrambled to find an alternative Catholic claimant to the throne to replace Henry. And this led to confusion and division. Some of them wanted to choose a female heir who would be most closely related to the Valois line. Some wanted to go to a man who might have been related through a female line. But the Parlement de Paris, this council that represented the nobles and the upper class around Paris, they sort of took up this issue and they rejected all of these alternative claimants to the throne and insisted on what was called Salic law, this notion that the throne can only legitimately pass through male lines from father to son. And on that basis, they maintained that Henry IV was the legitimate king, and none of these other claimants could be valid. So this just caused paralysis, right, when the different factions in Paris, in that main Catholic stronghold, couldn't come to agreement. So there was paralysis. And finally, in 1593, after years of stalemate, the king, Henry IV's mistress, named Gabrielle d'Estrée, persuaded Henry to convert to Catholicism. And People at the time reportedly said that the king told his advisors, quote, Paris vaut bien une messe, meaning Paris is well worth a mass. Now, we don't have any original document directly from the king or his inner circle verifying that, but that's sort of the story that took hold and that you still hear today. He said Paris is worth a mass, and so he was willing to go through a Catholic ceremony in the hopes that that would opened the gates of Paris to him. And that's what happened. The public and the Parlement were able to accept him, and the Catholic cause collapsed. So he was able to start establishing his rule more securely, consolidating control. In the year 1598, he made a treaty of peace with Spain, gaining recognition from that main foreign opponent for his rule as king. And also in 1598, he issued the Edict of Nantes, which proclaimed freedom of worship for Protestants in France within certain zones, basically within those towns and estates 
around the country that had been under Protestant control during the wars of religion. So it was not complete and total equality. It was not complete and total freedom of religion. It was just toleration for the French Protestant church within certain bounds. And the king's mistress, Gabrielle Destrey, who was very influential and respected by many parties, agreed to help promote this edict and persuade the hardcore Catholics to accept it as a policy. And so Henry, of course, was further impressed and ingratiated, and he obtained an annulment ending his marriage with Margaret of Valois, which already was, you know, a dead letter. And he made preparations to remarry and hold a wedding with Gabrielle, but she died before they were able to have a wedding. So instead, the following year in 1599, Henry married Marie de' Medici from Italy, and they had a son whom they named Louis in 1601. So now there was a line, a beginning of a line of male heirs to secure Bourbon rule. So with this, Henry went further in consolidating power. He enacted centralizing reforms, bringing the control of finances, taxes, tariffs into royal hands, a royal policy for education. He carried out a crackdown on corruption, which was sapping power and money out into private and local hands. He encouraged the promotion of agriculture within France and also was a proponent of overseas colonization. And France created its first permanent overseas colonies at Port Royal, or Port Royal in what's now, well, what became Acadia, what's now known as Nova Scotia, in 1605, and at Quebec in Canada in 1608. He was fairly widely popular. He was seen as a capable king who had brought peace and stability to the realm. And he was memorialized in popular songs as Le Bon Roi Henri, Good King Henry. But he was still hated by extremists on both sides. He was seen on the one hand as a usurper by the most fanatical Catholics and as a traitor by many Protestants who believed he had sold out and betrayed the faith by returning to Catholicism, not once but twice. There were many assassination attempts against him. And finally, in 1610, one of them succeeded, a fanatical Catholic monk killed Henry IV. So despite this tragic end, Henry IV was followed by four direct lineal descendants who came to the throne as Louis XIII, Louis XIV, Louis XV, and Louis XVI, and who together reigned from 1610 to 1789. And that's even if you don't count the years during the French Revolution. So just these four rulers reigned in France for over 179 years, an exceptional stretch of continual power for a small number of long-reigning rulers. And in many ways, this was a time of incredible stability and continuity for France, but it can also disguise the more rapid changeover of regimes that really happened between different factions and different power brokers and even de facto rulers behind the throne, which you don't necessarily see if you're only looking at the years of each king. 
And this reality began with Louis XIII. So when Henry died, his son Louis was only nine years old, and the kingdom was run by his mother, Marie de' Medici, who aligned the country diplomatically with Spain and who arranged for Louis to be married to a Spanish princess. And not long into Louis XIII's reign, the kingdom was nearly broke. There had been, of course, years of war and a certain degree of mismanagement and waste. And so the king, at the direction of his mother, the regent, summoned the Estates General, which was a gathering of representatives of the three estates of society, basically like a national parliament, which was called together in 1614. And even in normal years up to this time, the crown largely had to rely upon the upper class and on bodies called parlements. I already mentioned the Parlement de Paris, but these regional councils staffed mainly by aristocrats, where the upper class was represented and could negotiate and approve or reject revenue measures and all kinds of legal measures. So they had to basically call upon these regional groups. And then finally in 1614, the Estates General, a sort of national version of the same thing, in order to extract concessions to raise more revenue for the crown. Just three years later, King Louis XIII basically conspired with his favorite advisors and supporters to overthrow his mother and end her regency. He had her main Italian advisor and administrator killed, and there followed basically seven years of political chaos with different factions and parties coming to power in court and trying to manage policy. But eventually the king, as he matured and became an adult, he settled upon a man named Armand Jean du Plessis, Duc de Richelieu, who also has simply been called Cardinal Richelieu, who was 41 years old and had already served as foreign secretary for the realm since 1616, so he had experience in diplomacy and foreign affairs, and he also had been a cardinal of the church since 1622. So he had a certain amount of prestige and authority already built into his identity as both an upper-class aristocrat, a duke, and a churchman, and he also had a history of military service before he became foreign secretary. So Louis XIII naturally turned to him and made him his chief minister, put him at the top of the royal government, where he, of course, immediately butted heads with Marie de' Medici, the king's mother, who was still trying to hang on to power. Uh, Marie demanded his dismissal from office, but the king refused, and so Marie, it seems, basically gave up in a huff and exiled herself to the country and no longer was very important in politics. So Cardinal Richelieu, together with the king, further consolidated royal power, asserted more control over taxes and trade, and tried to basically formulate those policies and find means to implement them without requiring permission and participation by the parlements. 
And he went on a series of political campaigns, basically trying to undercut alternative power bases in the country. Firstly, the Protestant faction. Cardinal Richelieu revoked the self-government that had been allowed to Protestant groups in their enclaves within the country. And when local areas seemed to resist or drag their feet in giving up this local self-government, he would destroy their fortifications, which was the real material way that they could assert their power and independence. And most significantly, the Protestant faction was very strong in the southwestern part of the country, in regions like Saint-Ange. And the main city that was the sort of symbolic you could say, kind of second capital of Protestant France, was the port city of La Rochelle. And in 1627 to 28, Richelieu besieged La Rochelle, and after the city fell, he destroyed the fortifications. Secondly, he went on a more subtle and managed campaign against the aristocracy, and he began appointing royal officials called intendants, who were all commoners, they were from this sort of rising literate upper upper class of the lower class, whom you might roughly call bourgeois, and dispatched them as officials around the country with royally designated powers to basically undermine and block the actions of the governors, who were the sort of traditional regional managers, who were always nobles, right? who were dukes or counts of some sort. So the intendants are there with this royal authority, at the very least spying on what's going on around the different parts of the country, and when possible, seizing powers away from the nobility. And thirdly, he waged a diplomatic war against the Habsburg states, the real dynastic enemies now of the Bourbons, who were in control in Spain to the south and Austria to the east. And in order to sort of contain this Habsburg enemy, Richelieu aligned politically with Protestant powers, with the Netherlands and England. You know, ironically, although he was so determined to eliminate the Protestant power base within France, he made common cause with Protestants outside the country, and he arranged the marriage of King Louis's sister, Henrietta Maria, to King Charles I of England. And you might remember when I talked about England and the road to civil war, the fact that this Catholic French princess was there at the royal court hearing mass with her priests at the Palace of Whitehall. That is part of what inflamed the divisions within England and helped lead to the civil war. Richelieu also aligned with Sweden when the Thirty Years' War escalated over in Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, France under Richelieu actually made common cause with the Swedes and intervened in support of the mostly Protestant faction in that war. So this was something of a strange diplomatic revolution now that Richelieu, you know, despite his being a cardinal and despite his Catholic convictions, he rebalanced the whole political situation in Europe, basically in order to hold the Habsburgs at bay and prevent them from becoming kind of world rulers of all of Europe. 
he also was a man of culture and learning, and he supported culture and learning in important ways. He served as the headmaster of the Sorbonne, the main college at the University of Paris, which had royal patronage. And he founded the, the Académie Française, the sort of literary school which would set the standards for the French language. And in some ways, this was kind of soft power. It was a way of promoting uh, the prestige of the French language and art and literature. It also was a way of fostering a sort of standardized form of French, a sort of official French, which would facilitate then administration and communication around the country. If everybody, if all these officials and churchmen and nobles all around France are speaking the language of the king and Cardinal Richelieu, it's easier to run a centralized state. And he harnessed the growing wealth of the merchant class, as other people, other officials in Europe were doing at the same time, like in England and the Netherlands. He harnessed the growing wealth and ambition of the merchant class, especially to promote colonization. And he created the so-called Company of 100 Associates for the purpose of funding further exploration and colonization in North America. And it was this Company of 100 who funded the Samuel de Champlain's voyages, where he went southward down into the interior of North America from Quebec and created colonies and outposts. Richelieu died in 1642, and his post as chief minister went to another cardinal called Jules Mazarin. At least that's what he was called in French. Although he was actually Italian, and he'd been born in Abruzzo, a region in southeastern Italy, and his birth name was Giulio Raimondo Mazzarino. He was an Italian commoner, so in all kinds of ways he was a bizarre, you know, out-of-the-blue choice, you could say, for this very important role. But, you know, many Italians and many churchmen were also very learned and experienced in diplomacy and military affairs. He had served as a papal diplomat representing the papacy, and he began working for Richelieu. He jumped over and went into the service of Richelieu in France in 1640. And Richelieu began grooming him as his successor. So he took over as chief minister in 1642. And just one year later, in 1643, King Louis XIII died. And the throne passed to his son, Louis XIV, who was aged only five. So Louis XIV's mother, Anne, who by her birth title was Anne of Austria, she took up the role of regent, as Marie de' Medici had done before, but she gave the reins of government mostly to Mazarin. She trusted him enough to basically allow him to run policy in most respects. And Mazarin continued France's involvement in the Thirty Years' War, eventually leading in 1648 to the Peace of Westphalia, a negotiated peace which allowed local princes within their territories to set their own religious policies. So it was not an outright victory for the Catholic or Protestant sides. While this was a success and a point of pride for Mazarin and Anne of Austria, nonetheless, 
internal discontent within France was mounting and finally boiled over, partly because of this royal consolidation of power, this these sort of busybody attendants constantly trying to take power and information away from the noble governors, and also the mounting costs of war, which necessitated all kinds of taxes and requisitioning. And so there was mounting opposition. There also were difficult seasons, bad harvests, rising bread prices, leading to bread riots, mutinies of soldiers, and eventually sort of campaigns of raiding and marauding by demobilized soldiers coming back from the war, many of whom were discontented or had been brutalized by this very brutal war. And so in 1648, when the crown under Mazarin pressed for several more taxes to be raised, it led the Parlement de Paris to harness this discontent and disorder in the country and lead an open rebellion. So this rebellion led by the Parlement aimed to overthrow the regent, Anne of Austria, and the chief minister, Mazarin. While they, of course, did not dispute that the young Louis was the legitimate king, they wanted to have control over policy instead of these real, effective, de facto rulers, Anne and Jules. And this rebellion was called the Fronde, which is just a word meaning sort of banditry or disorder. And the royal court had to flee from Paris. They, there was no way that they could protect the king and the government. So they had to move out to wherever they could find shelter among their supporters out in the rest of the country. And for several years, for about five years from 1648 to 53, the king and his court lived in a state of fear and deprivation, and often uh, poverty, difficulty obtaining enough food, uh, cold. And some people have argued that this period of, of uncertainty and poverty for the royal court was one of the reasons for Louis XIV's later extravagance and his insistence on always having luxury and plenty all around him. Eventually, this group this rebel group led by the Parlement de Paris was defeated, but then the rebellion was taken up by General Condé, who actually had been a supporter and a leading general in the service of the king during the Thirty Years' War. But he then switched over and carried on the rebellion further, and Cardinal Mazarin was able to gather mainly German allies, people they had worked together with in the Thirty Years' War, and used them strategically to defeat Condé and regain control of the country, including the capital, and they entered triumphantly into Paris in 1653. So with the defeat of the Fronde, the aristocrats were now humiliated. They had lost on the field of battle. Many of them were stripped of their powers, their wealth, their estates, and the military was more thoroughly reorganized taken away from the control of these nobles who were, in theory, supposed to represent the warrior class. It was seized from them and given over to royally appointed and royally controlled officer hierarchies. And Mazarin went on then to win further conflicts in Flanders against Spain on the Spanish border, gain territory 
and he had really attained a position of great strength by the late 1650s. And in 1660, he arranged the marriage of the young King Louis to Maria Theresa of Spain. Mazarin was also an important patron of high culture. He brought Italian opera to France. He collected art, and his huge collection is now a large part of what's displayed at the Louvre Museum. And he founded the Bibliothèque Mazarine, which was the first public library in France. And shortly after arranging the marriage of the king, he died in 1661. So at this point, Louis was married and he was an adult and he moved to become a more active and direct ruler. He came into his own and he basically ruled as as his own chief minister, in effect, until his death in 1715. So he had a total reign from 1643 to 1715, which adds up to 72 years, the longest reign of any one monarch in the known history of Europe. Although Elizabeth II of Great Britain is getting close now at 68 years, (laughs) she may have her eye on that record. But nonetheless, Louis XIV is still the record holder, And he moved to further consolidate power, even beyond what Richelieu and Mazarin had achieved. And he pursued several important strategies in consolidating power in his own hands. The first one was the creation of a new palace to serve as the site of an enormous royal court at Versailles. And Versailles would serve as a single power center under royal control, that was a safe distance from Paris. Remember, Paris had been its own complicated political power player in all these wars and conflicts within France, including in the Fronde. And Louis wanted to be able to run his court independently, outside of the control of the city, and a safe distance from the leaders and elites and masses of the city. So he chose Versailles, which had been the site of just a small country hunting lodge, which his father had used sometimes as an alternative to having to stay at a tavern or things like that while he was out on hunting trips in the woods and the fields west of the city. And Louis began building a new palace in the high Baroque style of the time in 1661, and it was finished many years later in 1682. And this Baroque palace had extensive use of gilding, of mirrors, which were a very fine and rare luxury at that time, of strictly designed and maintained topiary gardens, which would show off his wealth and his extensive labor force that could plant and maintain formal gardens like that. Much of the furniture and fixtures of the palace was originally made of solid silver. So it was <laughs> it was just opulent extravagance beyond all bounds. And he forced most of the powerful aristocracy to move there where they would be under the king's watchful eye and where the focus of politics would always be on the king himself. 
And in addition to this aristocratic court, he also patronized great literature and drama. And much of the great literature of the French language, like the plays of Molière and Racine and the poetry of La Fontaine, were composed for Louis XIV's court at Versailles. And not all the documentation from this time necessarily survives in good shape, especially because of the French Revolution, or revolutions, plural. But really the richest and most insightful eyewitness account of how this court worked and why it was so important was written by an aristocratic duke named the Duke de Saint-Simon, who wrote his memoirs in the 1700s and described how this court worked from the inside, but also with a kind of scholarly detachment. So I'll read some passages from the Duke of Saint-Simon, and firstly I'll read his parts where he describes why this court existed in the first place and what advantage it, it offered to Louis. So he starts off discussing Versailles by saying, quote, Very early in the reign of Louis XIV, the court was moved from Paris, never to return. The troubles of his youth had given the king a dislike of that city. His enforced and surreptitious flight from it still rankled in his memory. He did not consider himself safe there, and thought cabals would be more easily detected if the court was in the country, where the movements and temporary absences of any of its members would be more easily noticed. So you can see, as he's saying here, it's a kind of surveillance tool. No doubt that he was also influenced by the feeling that he would be regarded with greater awe and veneration when no longer exposed every day to the gaze of the multitude. And he goes on to describe the social scene of the court and how this was an instrument of Louis's power. And he says, quote, not only did he expect all persons of distinction to be in continual attendance at court, but he was quick to notice the absence of those of inferior degree. At his levee, his coucher, his meals, in the gardens of Versailles, the only place where the courtiers in general were allowed to follow him, he used to cast his eyes to right and left. Nothing escaped him. He saw everybody. If anyone habitually living at court absented himself, he insisted on knowing the reason. Those who came there only for flying visits had also to give a satisfactory explanation. Anyone who seldom or never appeared there was certain to incur his displeasure. If asked to bestow a favor on such persons, he would reply haughtily, I do not know him. Of such as rarely presented themselves, he would say, He is a man I never see. And from these judgments, there was no appeal. So something that should be clear here is that the court of Versailles and the palace is still, you know, a magnificent world-famous monument, and it was built as a display of power and wealth. It was that. But Louis XIV didn't pursue that project because he was coming from a position of strength, but from a position of his own perceived weakness and insecurity that he felt he needed this kind of new Baroque palace as a way of controlling possible opposition. And the Duc de Saint-Simon continues on here, he always took great pains to find out what was going on in public places, in society, 
in private houses, even family secrets, and maintained an immense number of spies and talebearers. So this can start to sound reminiscent of modern dictators like Stalin. These were of all sorts. Some did not know that their reports were carried to him. Others did know it. There were others, again, who used to write to him directly, through channels which he prescribed, others who were admitted by the back stairs and saw him in his private rooms. Many a man in all ranks of life was ruined by these methods, often very unjustly, without ever being able to discover the reason. And when the king had once taken a prejudice against a man, he hardly ever got over it. So you might notice here, you know, we talk about things like the court at Versailles as this sort of relic of of the past, of this old autocratic era. But in a lot of ways, the strategies that Louis XIV had to use to try to exercise that kind of power were strikingly modern, were very, were kind of paved the way for modern day dictatorships. Now, the Duc de Saint-Simon also wants to explain very clearly the sort of person and the mentality that made it possible for Louis to run a court like this. And he had a certain kind of charisma. He had s- certain sorts of intelligence, although they, were, they had their limits. And he had a certain kind of charisma. And the Duke begins discussing Louis's reign by saying, quote, Louis XIV made for a brilliant court. His figure, his grace, his beauty, his grand bearing, even the tone of his voice and his majestic and natural charm set him apart from other men as the king. And to give him his due credit, the duke also says that he was active in war. He had a certain amount of stamina and a sort of limited courage that made him want to go out and take part in kind of easy, low-risk military endeavors like sieges. And he says, for example, he would go and show up at military sieges, quote, where he could make a cheap parade of bravery and exhibit his vigilance, forethought, and endurance of fatigue, for his robust constitution enabled him to bear fatigue marvelously. He cared nothing for hunger, heat, cold, or bad weather. He liked also, as he rode through the lines, to hear people praising his dignified bearing and fine appearance on horseback. His campaigns were his favorite topic when talking to his mistresses. This, of course, is just taken for granted by this time in France, that upper-class men and kings have multiple mistresses. This was his favorite topic when talking to his mistresses. He talked well, expressed himself clearly in well-chosen language. And no man could tell a story better. His conversation, even on the most ordinary subjects, was always marked by a certain natural dignity. The Duke says no one understood better than Louis XIV the art of enhancing the value of a favor by his manner of bestowing it. He knew how to make the most of a word, a smile, even of a glance. If he addressed anyone, were it but to ask a trifling question or make some commonplace remark, all eyes were turned on the person so honored. So in this way, he had he had a subtle way of focusing attention, of manipulating people, and making sure that everything revolved around himself. But as you might guess, these skills had a dark side. There were weaknesses that went with them that also very much came into play. 
in Louis XIV's reign, especially as time went on. And the Duke makes this very clear as well. Early on, he says, quote, Intrigues against the king during his childhood made Louis suspicious of intelligent, educated, noble, and highly principled men. So we might be thinking here, for example, of Cardinal Mazarin. And as the king advanced in years, he began to hate them. He wished to reign by himself, and his jealousy on this point soon became a weakness. The superior ability of his early ministers and generals soon wearied him. He liked no one to be in any way superior to him. He chose his ministers, therefore, not for their knowledge, but for their ignorance, not for their capacity, but for their want of it. And this problem only develops further and further and becomes just as much defining of Louis XIV's court as the king's charisma and abilities. So the duke goes on, quote, His ministers, generals, mistresses, and courtiers soon found out his weak point, namely his love of hearing his own praises. There was nothing he liked so much as flattery, or, to put it more plainly, adulation. The coarser and clumsier it was, the more he relished it. That was the only way to approach him. If he ever took a liking to a man, it was invariably due to some lucky stroke of flattery in the first instance, and to indefatigable perseverance in the same line afterwards. His ministers owed much of their influence to their frequent opportunities for burning incense before him. And although he had skill and intelligence in many different pursuits, this could really bog down his quality of governance. Right? You want to be focused on the big picture, but this is not how Louis XIV was, especially as years went on. And so the Duke describes, quote, His mind was occupied with small things rather than with great, and he delighted in all sorts of petty details, such as the dress and drill of his soldiers, and it was just the same with regard to his building operations, his household, and even his cookery. He always thought that he could teach something of their own craft, even to the most skillful professionals, and they, for their part, used to listen gratefully to lessons which they had long ago learnt by heart. He imagined that all this showed his indefatigable industry. In reality, it was a great waste of time, and his ministers turned it to good account for their own purposes, as soon as they had learnt the art of managing him. They kept his attention engaged with a mass of details, while they contrived to get their own way in more important matters. So you can probably hear here a lot of the classic failings and pitfalls of a megalomaniac. And finally, on this point, the Duke says he made no objection when his ministers gradually encroached on the privileges of the greatest noblemen. He felt that he could at any moment reduce them to their original obscurity, whereas in the case of a nobleman, though he could make him feel the weight of his displeasure, he could not deprive him or his family of the advantages due to his birth. For this reason, he made it a rule never to admit a seigneur into his councils. So this should drive home the point that I hinted at earlier, that this great display of absolute power and this great focus of attention on the majesty of the king was in many ways a sort of thin disguise 
over the fact that there was still a real power split between the king and the aristocracy. And that would continue on as a problem and would even in some ways fester. But before we get into that, what, what were the further strategies that the king and his government used to further this project of absolute rule? Well, he intentionally fostered and promoted monarchist legal doctrines. There was a very complex legal tradition going back centuries in France, which dealt with different powers and authorities differently. And the king naturally promoted scholars who ascribed to divine right, the notion that the king has a direct mandate from God to rule, and hence did not have to rely upon the approval of the church. In the Middle Ages, it was more normal for many scholars to say, well, you know, divine authority rests mainly with the church, and they are the arbiters of the real limits and prerogatives of different bodies in society, including the monarchy. Well, divine right was, in a way, an anti-clerical doctrine. It tried to seize that prestige away from the church for the king. Now, even that, that divine right doctrine, was not that unusual. It was pretty normal in the early modern era. It was a growing point of view. But Louis XIV went further in endorsing absolutism, a more radical idea, the idea that the king's authority is unlimited and that he has ultimate authority in everything. And this is summed up in the phrase that has traditionally been attributed to Louis, l'état c'est moi, or I am the state. Really means the, the state, it's me, <laughs> but roughly I am the state. Louis never really said that. There's no evidence from the time that he actually said that. It's something that was attributed to him years later as a way of kind of summarizing his position. And you should notice here that divine right is not the same thing as absolute power. You can say, I have divine right, I have a mandate from God, but that doesn't mean that your power is unlimited. It doesn't mean that there aren't other people in society who can oppose you or check or limit your power, such as the church or the aristocracy, which in France, of course, was represented by the parlements. But to, to claim absolute power is to go a big step further, is to say that I'm, I'm the only one with actual authority in the entire realm. I am the one center of power. All power flows from me. And there was a sort of campaign among jurists in Louis' reign who argued for total power for the king based in some way on Roman law, which was, you know, a, a, an odd way of threading the needle, but it was a way to try to give a foundation or an appearance of legitimacy to this claim of absolute power. And these jurists aggressively rejected feudal law which I talked about previously in my Myth of the Month on feudalism, the idea that holders of fiefs have certain prerogatives that they can hold on to that give them certain rights within their zones of power called fiefdoms. And so these absolutists went on a campaign against feudal law. They took up the line of argument that the feudal law had no basis in Roman law, and hence it was superseded by Roman law. And if you go by that 
precedent, that Roman precedent, there is no limit to the king's power. The most accomplished of these jurists was named Jean Domas, and his sort of big magnum opus was called Lois Civile dans leur ordre naturel, published in 1689. So civil laws in their natural order. And this book was a commentary on Roman law and an application of his sort of version, his cooked up version of Roman law applied to modern France. But at the same time, it was also Cartesian. He argued that these principles were derived directly, not just from precedent, but from reason and nature, from these sort of absolute universal rules written into the very nature of the universe. So these laws could be derived from moral and theological principles and didn't have to be rooted in precedent. So in this way, he was sort of following on Descartes and arguing that you you don't even have to worry about received precedent, received teachings. You can derive the truth from nature through pure reason. And naturally, the king really loved this. this. This completely freed him from any limits of custom or tradition or precedent. And the king settled a very generous pension on Jean Domas for this work. And these sorts of ideas were then used by royal officials to oppose nobles, holders of fiefs, and parlements. And so the parlements more and more were reduced to just sort of advisory and juridical councils or courts dealing with individual petty cases. They no longer were seen to have legislative authority or even real judiciary authority to interpret the law. So royal power really reaches its high watermark. This campaign against the rights and powers of the nobility kept Louis somewhat popular with the commoners. He was maybe not as popular as Henry IV, but he was pretty well liked. And naturally, the commoners, whether they were bourgeois and getting nice jobs in this royal government, or even peasants, they tended to see the king as their ally or protector against the aristocracy. So there was this somewhat precarious alliance in place between the commoners and the royal government. Thirdly, Louis did delegate important government affairs, especially the handling of trade and finance, to a fairly powerful and fairly talented finance minister named Jean-Baptiste Colbert. And Colbert was a commoner, and he never received noble titles. He came from the merchant class in the city of Rheims, and so you could say he was from a classic bourgeois background. And he worked diligently to foster trade and to promote the creation of local industries, such as a glass industry, to replace imports, like, for example, glass that might be imported from Venice, which was the common source at that time. And as part of this effort to build up industry and production within the country, he recommended the creation of the Académie des Sciences in 1666, which I mentioned before, it became important as a center of the scientific revolution. He asserted royal control over the guilds, these traditional bodies that had been self-regulating societies for the management of industries like building or weaving or dyeing or whatever. And so he created a sort of 
close alliance of trade and industry and royal administration and overseas colonization. He also was a promoter of trade overseas and of the creation of colonies to manage that trade and keep it within French channels. So he was he was a an influential figure and he did have important ideas about trade and industry, but he was never as powerful and as visionary a statesman, you could say, as Richelieu or Mazarin. And he died in 1683. And arguably, this is when the cracks really began to show that these very aggressive efforts that the French crown had made to consolidate power started to, you know, certain bills started to come due. And these weaknesses and shortcomings of Louis himself, who had such tremendous power over the government, came more into play. And certain strategies, you could say, that the king had employed at Versailles started eventually to backfire. It was unsustainable, you could say, in retrospect. And of course, you might say, well, that's presentist. You know, we know in retrospect now that this royal regime didn't last forever, and we're projecting that back into the past. But there were observers from before the revolution who anticipated that these governance strategies were going to lead eventually to a disaster. And again, if we look at the Duc de Saint-Simon, he's very prescient. And he ends his discussion of the court at Versailles by saying, quote, He loved splendor, magnificence, and profusion in all things, and encouraged similar tastes in his court. To spend money freely on equipages and buildings, on feasting and at cards, was a sure way to gain his favor, perhaps to obtain the honor of a word from him. Motives of policy had something to do with this. By making expensive habits the fashion, and for people in a certain position a necessity, he compelled his courtiers to live beyond their income, and gradually reduced them to depend on his bounty for the means of subsistence. This was a plague which, once introduced, became a scourge to the whole country, for it did not take long to spread to Paris, and thence to the armies and the provinces, so that a man of any position is now estimated entirely according to his expenditure on his table and other luxuries. This folly, sustained by pride and ostentation, has already produced widespread confusion. It threatens to end in nothing short of ruin and a general overthrow. So in this estimation, you could see the extravagance of Louis and his court as a kind of black hole that sucked in the entire leadership class of the country into excessive spending and debt. And eventually these bills were coming due and the structure was going to collapse. Now, before we get into that, because that's the story of the 18th century, what else did Louis do, particularly in the years after the death of Colbert in 1683? Well, in 1685, King Louis XIV ended the partial religious toleration for Protestants. He revoked the Edict of Nantes, began a campaign of destroying Protestant churches and closing Protestant schools, which eventually forced all Protestants to either give up their religion, 
convert to Catholicism or emigrate from the country. And one of the results was a mass migration out of France. About half a million people, although it's hard to calculate with any precision, about half a million French Protestants went out to North America, to Northern Europe, especially to England and Scandinavia, and also to Africa, to the Dutch colony of the Cape Colony in what's now South Africa. And this mass emigration led to a brain drain. Among other things, craft industries like the new glass industry, the silver industry, and silk were decimated. And this reduced that internal industrial production that Colbert had worked so hard to build up. And also he continued to pursue warfare. So as the Duc de Saint-Simon says, the court of Louis XIV was very frequently at war, and in the later years it was almost constantly at war, or when at peace it was still preparing for the next war. And Louis did have some successes, such as against Spain in the south and the Netherlands in the north, and for a time they were really the greatest power in Europe, without rival. But the cost of these wars became ever greater, especially as other countries began to catch up militarily, and the king had to scrounge more and more for sources of revenue to keep funding these campaigns. And that silver furniture that I mentioned going into Versailles at the beginning was melted down over the course of the 1680s to pay for warfare. In the year 1700, as I talked about in my last lecture on Latin America, in 1700, King Charles II of Spain died, and this was the end of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty, and he designated as his heir a relative who was a grandson of Louis XIV. And this presented a great opportunity for Louis to get one of his own allies, or even his own heir, onto the throne of Spain and turn that longtime enemy into an ally or maybe even a puppet. And so he waged a war against England, Austria, and a massive coalition of other opponents all around Europe in support of this grandson, Philip. And he succeeded in securing international recognition of Philip as the new ruler of Spain. So this was the consolidation of this Bourbon Spanish dynasty. But the cost was tremendous. And when Louis died shortly after, in 1715, the kingdom was in astronomical debt. And this was significant partly because France did not have a national bank like England. So England had created this weird sort of public-private partnership hybrid in the Bank of England, which could lend to the crown on very favorable terms and even when the crown really wanted to, could just cancel that debt because they had other sources of revenue aside from the government. There was nothing like that in France, and so the crown was borrowing often on very bad terms, high interest rates. They were unable to get out of these debts. And when Louis died in 1715, he was succeeded by his great-grandson because most of his children and descendants were already dead. So he was succeeded by his great-grandson, who at age five came to the throne as Louis XV. And he reigned for 59 years. So the, still not quite Louis XIV's record, but also a remarkably long reign. 
And early on, as a child, he also had a regency, right? His relative, the Duke d'Orléans, served as the regent. And their chief minister was named Jean Fleury, and they were nothing like Cardinal Richelieu, let's say, nothing like that level of competence or vision or ambition. Then in 1743, now that Louis XV was an adult, he took up rule on his own, and he was generally fairly popular as well, but ineffective in many ways. He went through a series of mostly unremarkable, mediocre ministers, eventually ending up on the Duc de Choiseul. And they had some successes, especially in internal improvements, like the building of roads and canals, the simplification and standardization of the tax code. They also were able to annex Corsica, an old Italian republic on an island in the Mediterranean, which was annexed into the French kingdom. But the main dilemma was their attempt to balance, on the one hand, heavy involvement on the continent, where they were feuding with the Habsburgs and the Netherlands and other powers, and on the other hand, involvement in overseas colonization, as they tried to build up a colonial empire with slave-populated sugar plantations in the Caribbean and a massive internal network of colonies in North America where they were trying to rival and hold off the power of Britain, which was such a successful colonial power. So they were trying to balance their activities on the European continent and their imperial ventures overseas, and they became very overstretched, leading to many failures. Early on, the Regency government attempted to raise money for their ventures in North America through the Mississippi Company, headed by a sort of, you know, fly-by-night, dubious financier from Scotland named John Law. And this led to arguably the first real financial bubble, as there was this massive rush to invest in the Mississippi Company, and then it burst and the company imploded in 1720, and John Law sort of literally fled from Paris at night. They also gained but then quickly lost territories in wars against the Netherlands. New France, this network of French outposts along the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes and the Mississippi, expanded, but then it was all disastrously lost to Britain in the Seven Years' War in the 1760s. And part of the reason for this loss was that there were simply fewer French colonists on the ground to fight that war. They were massively outnumbered by British colonials in New England and Pennsylvania and Virginia, And part of why that was, was that they were much more heavily involved in struggles within Europe and needed those soldiers and needed that population more within France. Louis XV continued to rule from Versailles, as Louis XIV had done, with a sumptuous court, but not quite as extravagant, perhaps, and not as accomplished and not as intellectually rich as Louis XIV's court had been. The court was largely run by his eminent mistress, Madame de Pompadour, who was very learned and sophisticated, and for a time acted almost like one of the chief ministers, really, controlling access to the king and 
setting policy, more or less. Perhaps the reign would have gone better <laughs> if authority had just been formally handed over to Madame de Pompadour. But that was not possible. And there were new internal problems in the realm. So the Protestant wing had been really decimated by Louis XIV, but now there was a growth of a new heterodox movement within the Catholic majority called Jansenism, which was a sort of neo-Augustinian spiritual movement, a sort of quietist spiritual movement, pietistic, that was much more resistant to the ceremonialism of the Catholic Church. It was popular among intellectuals and then also spread among the merchant class, the bourgeoisie, and Jansenism was officially condemned by the Pope, but it continued to spread, and there was a power struggle, a new factional struggle in the royal court over whether or not to enforce the papal condemnation of Jansenism, and this led to a class divide, an intellectual divide, and eventually the anti-Jansenists won a partial victory. They were able to enact strict censorship against Jansenist writings and ideas and excommunication of clergy who accepted Jansenism. However, the Parlement de Paris, that traditional power center council of the upper class in Paris, they opposed this move. And the Parlement was increasingly influenced by sort of new modern ideas, spiritual, philosophical ideas. They were more anti-clerical than they had been before. And they tried to intervene to protect the rights of Jansenists against this condemnation and censorship. And the struggle over Jansenism was one factor that helped to fuel a so-called aristocratic resurgence. So more and more nobles started to step forward and try to reassert their rights and prerogatives to openly oppose royal policy in a way that hadn't been possible 30 or 40 years earlier, and really openly try to block royal decrees for the first time since the Fronde back in the 1650s. In 1761, the Parlement of Normandy claimed the right to collect taxes on behalf of the crown. So although the tax rates might be set by royal edict, they claimed the sort of real, tangible, on-the-ground power of collecting those taxes. And the king rejected this assertion by the Parlement de Normandy and banished many of the leaders to their estates, basically kicked them off of this council. And this was a big sign of escalation of new... Uh, a new power struggle between the traditional upper class and the king, and this continued right through till the 1780s. And what really topped it off, you could say, was jealousy and acrimony over the Jesuit order, a very, very powerful organization within the Catholic Church that had always been controversial in France. They always had opponents and critics among the other religious orders, like Franciscans and Dominicans. There were controversies over the so-called Chinese rites. So this was the policy of the Jesuits of converting people in China, the upper class in China, to Roman Catholicism, but allowing them to still practice 
homage and reverence for their ancestors. And the, the Jesuits considered this acceptable. It was not against Christianity. But Franciscans and Dominicans and others used this as a rhetorical attack on the Jesuits, that they were allowing idolatry and paganism to pollute Catholic teachings. Well, now with the rise of Jansenism, this further intensified this conflict, and people who either embraced Jansenism or defended the Jansenists took on the Jesuits as their main enemy, the sort of shock troop enforcers of these papal bans on Jansenism. And so Jansenists and their allies in the court were able to win a victory when in 1764, the royal government officially suppressed the Jesuits and forced them to disband the order and give up their properties in France. And this was a you know really radical move and escalation, but it was followed in other countries for different reasons. Others like Spain and Portugal followed suit and also uh, suppressed the Jesuits. Although I may have to look this up, Portugal may have actually been first before France, but maybe I'll talk about that another time. But France was certainly one of the leaders. So all of these new conflicts and struggles were roiling when in 1774, Louis XV died, and he was succeeded by his grandson, who took up the throne at age 20 as Louis XVI. So this was a sort of pivotal moment because Louis XVI was at this crucial age where he was coming into adulthood. He was old enough to actually take up de facto rule as king. He did not have to rely on a regent. But he was young enough that he had been steeped in the new thinking and new ideas of the time, the new sort of rationalism, the new skepticism towards the clergy and especially the Jesuits, the new openness to religious toleration or secular thought. And he was forward-thinking in a lot of ways and receptive to dissident ideas. He wanted to enact toleration again for Protestants and Jansenists. He wanted to abolish serfdom, the sort of most extreme position of subjection in which peasants were under the control of their landlords. And he wanted to even abolish landlords' traditional rents that they were able to charge from peasants, rents of labor and cash payment. And he also wanted to reduce the death penalty for crimes like desertion. And that was a main point of contention from the new philosophes like Voltaire, who argued against the death penalty. But all of these moves were thwarted by the aristocracy and by opponents who were gaining power and control at the royal court. One thing he was able to do was liberalize trade, reduce restrictions and regulations on trade in commodities, particularly the grain market. But this ended up leading to spikes in bread prices when there were grain shortages and there were waves of bread riots, such as in 1775, just the year after Louis came to the throne. So it didn't all pan out so well. He was able to score something of a success when, in 1778, he agreed to enter into the war between the American colonies and Britain in support of the rebelling colonists, and this led to a partial victory where the independent United States 
then became a new ally and trading partner of France. So the French were able to make new inroads into this growing market in North America that had been off limits to them and controlled by Britain. But it incurred further expenses. It's very expensive to shuttle troops and weapons back and forth across the ocean. These new expenses, plus the continuing expense of the upkeep of this massive palace complex at Versailles, led to deeper and deeper debt. And the monarchy was staring at possible bankruptcy and loss of credit. And so he wanted to somehow repay this debt. But the question was, who will pay? As we've seen, there are these important contending parties. There are these poor commoners who have already been engaging in bread riots that in many ways recalled and echoed the riots and mutinies of the Fronde. There were the bourgeoisie who were eager for more power and prestige in line with their wealth and who had had a lot of power and connections to court under Louis XIV. And then there were these resurgent nobles and there was the church and it was a very tricky situation. Who would contribute what to pay off this massive national debt? And there was a clear need to work out and oversee a negotiation and a negotiated settlement of who would take up these burdens. So it seemed a natural wise move in 1788 was to call another estates general for the first time since 1614, and actually have representatives of the different estates of society come together and work it out. But there was tremendous ambiguity. How would an estates general work? Nobody really even knew in clear detail how the estates general of 1614 had worked, let alone the centuries of precedent before that. And even if there were clear records, who would decide how a 1788 Estates General would actually operate? Who would get a vote? Who would the delegates be? And would they vote on block with each estate casting one vote, one, two, three, or would the individual delegates cast votes? And if so, how many delegates would there be from each estate? How would it be apportioned? All of this was up in the air, and beyond that, there was the underlying political question of what alliances would form or break among the crown, the aristocracy, the church, and the commoners. And an important question on the minds of many people, especially the bourgeoisie, was would the crown continue to act as an ally and protector of the commoners as against the aristocracy? So it was while all these questions were up in the air and being debated in one way or another to one degree or another that a radical cleric, and there were some radical clergy at this time in the monasteries and convents of France, one of them, the Abbé Sieyès, published a pamphlet called Qu'est-ce que c'est que le troisième état, or What is the Third Estate? So the third estate, as you remember, was the term for the entire body of commoners who constituted the vast majority of the population, however you measured it at that time. And Sieyès argued that the third estate was the nation or the whole of the nation. So this was a, 
a different way of thinking about society, speaking of a nation as this sort of organic unified body of people, rather than speaking of the estates and their different roles in society. So he's saying, look, the nation really is just the third estate, and the other elements, the nobility and the church, are simply parasitic additions upon the nation. They are not truly of the nation. Something rather shocking to hear from someone who was himself a churchman. So you can see the, this pamphlet as proto-nationalist, as quasi-democratic in a way, but also you can see it as an outgrowth of a new possible political alliance of the church with the commoners, which would join together to kind of redefine the root and basis of authority in society. Remember how previously in the Middle Ages, many people had seen the church as kind of the arbiter that could uh, confirm or deny the legitimacy of a ruler like the king. And the doctrine of divine right sort of did an end end run around that, saying, no, no, the king has his own divine authority separate from the church. Well, in a way, you could see this pamphlet, What is the Third Estate, as a churchman trying to kind of redirect that authority and legitimacy away from the crown and the nobility towards the commoners. It was it was a gesture maybe towards a new kind of political alliance. But what it ended up doing, its main effect, was that it galvanized members of the bourgeoisie, of the sort of wealthy common class. And it galvanized these delegates who anticipated going and participating in the Estates General and created a a strong insistence that they should get at least proportional votes to the number of delegates who showed up at the Estates General. If not, ideally, a vote share in proportion to their actual position in society, which was the massive majority. So this was the situation where you now have churchmen, commoners, and aristocrats taking different views and positions on how this Estates General should operate. And all of this was up in the air and unresolved, and feeding into an increasingly acrimonious debate when the Estates General finally convened in May 1789. And that's where I will leave this off, because that is where the, you could say, the powder keg was lit, and over the course of months led to the beginning of a revolution. But what I want you to see is how We talk about the revolution as this radical rupture, but the stage was set for it in these long-standing and really never resolved political problems and questions about the relations between the different classes and estates of society that were simply temporarily suppressed from view by the project of absolutism and by the spectacle of Louis XIV and his court at Versailles. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to hear all of my work, including the next myth of the month, please go to my Patreon page and become a patron at any level. I've been working on researching astrology, but 
It's difficult to access decent scholarly work on astrology. I've had to order some books. It's cost some money. So really supporting this podcast as a patron, it not only gives you that access, but it really makes it possible for me to do the kind of good research I want to do to deliver good historical lectures on all these topics that you want to hear about. So to to keep that coming and to keep the quality high, please, again, become a patron at any level. Thank you. Yeah.